leading us in song. We are grateful to God uh, for the work he has done in Christ. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer together? Lord, we thank you for meeting us. You are so faithful to lead us in confession of our sin, the reminder of your great pardon and forgiveness. Lord, calling us to sing to you and to one another these great truths that you are our hope in life and death, that you are the ancient of days, that you alone are worthy of worship, that you alone are our hope, our joy, our confidence, our soul's treasure. And Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together to worship. We pray for uh, the rest of this service, Lord, that you would give us great encouragement uh, as we look in a few moments at your word. Father, we don't lift up just ourselves, but other churches. We think of Calvary Baptist Church this morning, that you would be with them as they gather to worship, that you would strengthen them and give them great uh, encouragement in Christ, that you would give them boldness for the gospel. Father, we pray for other churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We pray for Grace Bible Church in San Diego, California, that you would be with them, Lord, as they uh, just meet together in a few hours here and worship you, that you would give them uh, encouragement and grace, give them um, hope, give them words to speak to their community, Lord, as you redeem souls in the San Diego area. Father, we don't forget to pray for the persecuted church. Lord, our hearts are heavy for her. You tell us to pray for uh, persecuted saints as if we are in uh, prison with them. And so, Lord, we lift up the persecuted church in Afghanistan this morning, that you would be with them, that you would encourage them, that, Lord, if they're imprisoned, that, Lord, you would make yourself known right there with them in their cell. Lord, if they're um, enduring beatings, that you would give them strength to do so. And if they are to lay down their lives, Lord, that you would help them to be faithful to the end and to trust themselves to a faithful creator. Lord, we pray for those who are unreached. Oh God, it's, it's, it's overwhelming to think that there's 3.2 billion people on this planet that have never heard your name. And so we pray, Lord, for missionaries to be sent out that you would raise up workers for the harvest. God, we pray this morning for the Chinoa people of Algeria that you would send missionaries to them they don't have scriptures in their language. They are unreached by all definitions. Send missionaries to them, Lord, and give your church uh, great confidence in supporting that work. Um, Lord, as you would seek to raise up many to go to the mission field. Father, we pray for troubled spots in our world. We think of Sudan and Ethiopia, West Africa, with all of its coups going on, and now mention of an earthquake in Morocco that has killed over 2,000 people, oh God. Would you help them to heal and that, Lord, you'd raise up the church to minister and share the gospel. Lord, that you would be with those that are suffering. Father, we think of Ukraine as well and Russia and uh, the church there, Lord, that they would raise up and, um, and encourage others even in the midst of great um, war and tragedy. Father, that you would be with those that are grieving, that you'd be with the refugees in various places. We lift up our own military, Lord, to you, that you'd be with them as they are serving our country and apart from friends and family, and even believers in the military are apart from their churches. Lord, that you give chaplains wisdom in encouraging these souls. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with those that are grieving. We think of Roger Spenlove after the loss of his father just over a week ago. We continue to lift up the Wyatt family, Lord, here in Ash County after the death of Ronnie. Uh, Lord, we think of others that have um, suffered uh, in Hawaii after that fire and people still grieving there. Lord, um, uh, even in the wake of the hurricane in Florida, and now it looks like another hurricane on its way. We think of the fires in Canada and various natural disasters in various places. Oh, God, would you uh, provide uh, your great grace in um, drawing many to, to yourself through these things. Father, we lift up uh, expectant mothers. We think of Sarah, Lord, that you would be with her, uh, that you would be with this baby in her womb. Lord, that you would bring a, uh, just a healthy pregnancy and a, a safe delivery later this year. 
Lord, we pray for those who are not feeling well. Uh, we continue to pray for complete healing for the Smith family. And Lord, for continuing to pray for Dean Mundy, Lord, and his battle with Bell's palsy. Uh, we think of John Cordy, a missionary through RBNet that is battling esophageal cancer. We think of Christina Graybeal as well, Lord, and her uh, cancer journey, that you would be with her and her treatments. Uh, thank you for giving wisdom to Kitty as well as she uh, heals, Lord, um, her bones uh, in her clavicle and her shoulder, Lord. Father, we pray that you would be with uh, those from us that have been uh, that have gone out to serve other churches this morning. We think of Nathan, Lord, as he preaches at Pine Mountain, that you would be with him. Father, we thank um, of Brian Furches, Lord, as he preaches at Tuckerdale, that you would be with him. Give him great utterance by your spirit. Uh, thank you for these men, Lord, that we're able to share with local churches um, to encourage in the midst of them needing a pastor. Father, we pray for uh, the Janigan family, Lord, that uh, Kirsten brought to our attention that needs provision, that you would provide for them. We think of the Garretts who are leaving for Chad, Africa this next week, that you would provide for them. Lord, we think of many who are still grieving, even though this is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, that you would be with those families this morning and this week, Lord, as they call to remembrance uh, these things from decades ago. Father, you'd be with those who are traveling. We think of the Corvex and others that are traveling, that you'd be with them. Father, we thank you for Tim Bullington uh, down at Christ Alone, our church plant down in Wilkesboro, that you would give him great strength, Lord, as he preaches, continue to bring healing to him and to Cindy, Lord, as they battle various uh, health concerns. Father, raise up leaders, Lord, for uh, them and for us, Lord, as you see fit. Uh, Lord, we now ask for your help, Lord, as we go to your word, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that you would not just be glorified in the preaching of your word, but our obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning trust you are doing well as we head into September here. Uh, we are thrilled to uh, be um, looking at God's word this morning. I trust that our study through the book of Genesis has brought encouragement to you. Um, it certainly has to me as we walk through uh, just uh, over 35% uh, the way through Genesis. And uh, so what a great journey the Lord is helping us through. We want to look at uh, Genesis chapter 21 this morning, verses 8 through 21. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the words of the living God. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abram, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. And so Abram rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes and then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. 
He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Identity. It's a word that perhaps brings multiple thoughts to our minds. We live in a world that uh, we are desiring to keep our identities private as far as our online world. We think of the need to be able to identify ourselves in the sense of the government and our uh, travel that is necessary. But identity is something that is quite interesting as well, something that sometimes we seek to hide ourselves or even spend our lives trying to find. In a recent book by a Christian in the UK, he had worked in special operations for the um, United Kingdom and was, in, um, was an agent, uh, an undercover agent for many years. And he worked with someone uh, in, a, in a foreign land uh, for over 20 years on multiple operations and deep cover for the British government. It was after 20 years that in a very short period of time, it was exposed that the partner that he had been working with for over 20 years turned out to be a Russian double agent. His shock reverberated through his life. He was supposed to be on the top of his game, and yet he didn't see what was right under his nose. He wrote a book about this and talked about, even as a Christian, how this destroyed his trust in all of humanity, led him to really believe the conspiracy theories that he had always doubted. And at the very soul root, he had trouble trusting even God himself and struggling to know his identity in Christ. It's very interesting that in a text like this, we see that these two young boys are just growing up in a family with an amazing amount of conflict. And some of that conflict was caused by the fleshly decisions of Abraham and Sarah. And yet they are the very root of what God is doing in the world at this time, his redemptive purposes. It's always already been amazing to us in our study of Genesis that God uses us sinful fallen people yet redeemed to be the heralds of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that there's a host of angels, that millions and millions of angels, a heavenly host that we read about throughout the scriptures, they are not tasked with this great cause. As even myself and the worship team heard this week at the Sing Conference, that the, the difference between God's global heart for the nations and its consummation, the only thing that stands between those two is our lips. God is working through his people, and we see that in the context here of even Genesis 21, that God is reminding time and again Abraham and Sarah that they are the root to this promised blessing that ultimately would find its fulfillment in Christ and beyond. And it's in the midst of this that we see this conflict happen, almost echoing the conflict that we saw in miniature form in chapter 18. But we would see here that Abraham and Sarah would be reminded, and Isaac as well at a young age, would realize that their identity in God's uh, proclamating purposes were right here in his plan for redemption. So let's look at this text in four quick ways. First of all, we see a celebration happening in verse 8, and we'll see what's going on here. Secondly, we see a persecution. And you might not say that words uh, that go to Sarah would be persecution, but we'll look at Galatians here in a little bit and see that indeed it is persecution uh, of uh, the promised child. And then thirdly, we see that there's a conclusion of these matters as God steps in and asks Abraham to consider the voice of his wife. And then finally, we'll see provision even for this 
uh, slave woman that has been cast out with her son Ishmael. So let's take a look at the text here. Look, uh, again, reminding us of what we looked at last week, that the promised son Isaac came at the perfect time as God had ordained. They had been waiting on him for so long. We know that um, Abraham, from verse 5, is 100 years old, and Sarah is just behind him um, in her 90s, giving birth, and the almost miraculous uh, belief that, that she would be nursing an infant in her old age is a consummation of the promise to them in their lifetime. We made uh, applications to this, that God doesn't need our help as his people, that he is able to do this and what he does his, and that he promises he is able to fulfill. And we've seen this in the text all throughout, that God is keeping his promises to Abraham and to Sarah. And so it's in the, the midst of this that we have this promised child arrived that we see that the tension is not yet over. Look at verse 8. It says, The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. For you moms out there, that is a day of celebration, isn't it? When a, a child is no longer connected to you physically, is something to celebrate. But there's something deeper here in the text. Yes, the child's growing, and yes, there wasn't necessarily a great feast on the day of his circumcision, but we know that there's a celebration ultimately of Isaac growing up that he is becoming uh, a, a young man, that he is now a, a child that is weaned, that he is not dependent upon his mother. And so we see that this great celebration is happening. There was great joy, as we know, with his birth, that laughter is the theme of all of these passages. They laughed, Sarah and Abraham laughed at the thought of it even happening. And that laughter was turned to a joyful laughter as they actually saw Isaac in, in the flesh as he was born. And laughter, and even Sarah in our last passage in verse 1 through 7 is saying, all those that hear will laugh. But here we see a sneering laughter in verse 9. In the wake of this celebration, in the midst of this comes a great persecution to both Sarah and Abraham. Look at verse 9. It says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, speaking of Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, this is a, a laughter not of a joke or something funny or even of the laughter that could have been heard during the celebration, but it was a laughing of mockery. In other words, Ishmael knew that his father loved him. He knew uh, much. We know that, that uh, Ishmael is probably 12, 13 years old at this point because you do the math when he was born versus when, um, how old uh, Abraham is now, that um, this is a young teenager at oldest. And you teenagers, listen up, because oftentimes uh, you are in situations where you are learning to be an adult, but yet you are also fighting uh, off the old childish ways. We don't know from the text why he's doing this, but we know that he is mocking in a persecution type way his younger brother, Isaac. Isaac, probably three years old, is more than 10 years younger than him. He is mocking him. And he is probably uh, doing this in a way that is uh, demeaning to Isaac. And he's doing this in a way that is unhelpful, ultimately, for the family peace. And we see here, it's in the midst of a celebration Perhaps a birthday, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it was when he was weaned. How often do we have family conflict at great times of the year when we're celebrating something? When we're having a birthday party or celebrating at Christmas or Thanksgiving around the table that somebody drops uh, some great reminder of the tension in the family. Well, we see this as very uh, damaging because it says in verse 10... So Sarah sees this, and isn't that often the truth, women? You are definitely more attentive than the men around who can only think about one thing at a time. 
and Abram's focusing on the ribs that are cooking on the grill, and he doesn't hear the conflict that's going on and the sneering laughter of Ishmael to Isaac. But Sarah knew. Women have intuition, right? Sometimes I get in trouble just for what I think, even though I didn't say anything. I'm teasing, Bonnie. But the point here is that she hears this. This is extremely hurtful to her. Listen, it's, there's nothing that's more true of when a mama hears her children being attacked. It's like you are attacking mama bear. And this is exactly what happens to Sarah here in verse 10. And she's angry at what she hears. And notice she goes to Abraham. Now, it's important to know Sarah is revered as a very submissive, honoring wife. Her character is very impeccable. She even went along in, in an honoring way to Abraham to say that she was his sister, even though it was wrong. In other passages, it says that Sarah was notable for even calling Abraham Lord, lowercase l, a great sign of respect. She constantly submitted herself to Abraham. She loved Abraham and served the family well. And notice that she doesn't go after Hagar by herself. This is a great amount of self-control that we need to see here in this text. Instead of spitefully snapping back, she goes to Abraham and she says these words which are inspired, because we'll look at this in a moment, that the Apostle Paul speaks to this. She says these words, cast out this slave woman, that he shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this is a true statement. He is not an heir in the sense of the promise, but he is an heir of Abraham. We already know that's been established from chapter 18 that God had a plan for Ishmael. Even though he is separated from the fulfillment of the promise that God ultimately is doing so, excuse me, doing something in both these young men and will have a plan for both of them. But notice that she explains this, that this is something that cannot be. And notice the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of, of his son. He's displeased, no doubt, about the laughter and the tension, but he's also displeased in the sense of the constant uh, tension that even went to his son Ishmael. But he's displeased here because of the boy. And so we see that it's in this context that God steps in. And isn't it awesome that in the midst of our conflicts, that God in his grace brings resolution to whatever conflict that we are experiencing in our families, in our health, in whatever it might be, that God is there. He's very present, and he reminds them at this point of what he is doing, that they can be identified with himself and his promise and his people. And so we've seen the celebration, we've seen uh, this persecution that comes towards uh, uh, Sarah and Abraham and, and Isaac. But now we see here God's concluding statements on how he's going to bring these things to pass. It says, but God said, verse 12, to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So several things going on here. First of all, God brings attention to the conflict. He tells Abraham that he doesn't need to be displeased, even though that's what's rising up in his heart. But thirdly, what Sarah is saying is indeed God's providential plan to use Isaac as the promised offspring. And it's through Isaac that God will build a nation. You can understand the tension for Abraham and his great uh, di uh, dismay in how this is happening in his own home. You remember that Hagar, of course, was taken by his own plan and Sarah's own plan to raise up offspring. No doubt that Sarah regretted for the rest of her life. Abraham seeking to be a good father to both. 
sought to encourage and to uh, see that God would even use Ishmael as the promised seed. And we see that wrestling through the last passages. But God has made clear time and again, no, I will raise up a seed out of your own body. Out of the womb of Sarah will come a promised son. And he came to, came to be. So in verse 13, he underlines this and reminds them. He says, and I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also. So you see that Abraham is disturbed. He does care for Ishmael. He does have compassion on his own son. He he does care about him. He wants to see him thrive and to have a good life. And yet he sees this tension in what God is doing. He says, but he will do this because he is your offspring. In other words, God is honoring Abraham and his even his displeasure in what is going on to show grace even to Ishmael. We know that Ishmael would become the prince of many nations, that God is going to use him, but we'll see in a few moments that this is also to be interpreted allegorically. So look at verse 14. It says, So Abraham rose in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. Now, I think it's important, we've seen the same phrase, Abraham rose early in the morning. We, we see this throughout Abraham's life, not just as a discipline, but that it's an intention here. The first thing on Abraham's mind is to do what God has told him to do. It's an, it's an act of faith, of goodwill, that he rises up and notice that even in the sense and the context that he is sending out a slave woman, notice his great care for her. He takes bread, provision, a skin of water, and he doesn't just give it to her and say, get out of here. Notice he gives it to her, he gives it to Hagar, and notice he puts it on her shoulder. Notice the softness, the tenderness that Abraham is showing to Hagar. There's a sense of emotion that is here in the text that he takes time to aid her in her departure, that he is caring for her needs, that the father of this child, and yet it is God's plan that she depart. The tension has grown to that level. And notice, he puts it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Now, the text says child here, but we know that Ishmael is a little bit older. So don't uh, be dismayed there that uh, the picture here is of uh, an older child. And so she departs and notice that she's wandering. In those days, if you had been separated from your family, you're literally on your own. There's no government assistance. There's no uh, help. There's no one taking you in. Often women and children were vulnerable to robbers and to all kinds of uh, scary things, let alone living in the desert. And so she's in the wilderness and in this area of the world, intense heat most of the year. And so we see here in the context of what we're seeing in verse 15, that the water, of course, ran out, and she put the child under one of the bushes. And then notice she went off and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. And notice her reasoning. She didn't want to look on the death of her child. She thought it was over, that her race is done, her life ended, and that of her child. She's been cast out. She feels the dismay and the the, uh, the fullness of all that has happened in this family conflict for many years. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. I think it's important to notice here that even though we know that there's a different trajectory for Hagar and for Sarah as Abraham's wives, we also see the trajectory of their sons, but we also see here God's great kindness to not just Abraham in the context of covenant and his identity, but notice that Ishmael had identity from Abraham as well. In fact, even the Arabs today would go back to Abraham as their root, and rightly so. We see that here in this text. But notice that she wept. 
And notice the grace of God even for those outside of His promise. God hears the voice of the boy. No doubt crying out in thirst in the waning of his spirit and soul, thinking he would die. And notice it says the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and answers her and says to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. It's interesting that God hears the voice of the boy, even though she's crying out as well. But God is tender just as we saw with Abraham, that God is listening to those that cry out to him. It should remind us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that they will find rested assurance in him, that he is one that is not far but near, one that can be called out upon. And so he answers. And notice here in this context that provision throughout is not just given by Abraham in a physical way, but Abraham's provision ran out. And where human provision fails is where God's provision begins. You think about the context of your own life. Perhaps God has taken away provision that you rested upon at one time. Perhaps even tempted to make an idol in your life and God by his grace dissolves it that you cannot trust it anymore to put you more in full assurance upon him. And so the voice of God says in verse 18, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Now, whether this had been communicated to Hagar over the years or not, we know from chapter 18 that Abraham certainly knew about this. And how often is it that we tend to forget what God has said and we find ourselves in utter exhaustion like we see these two in the wilderness? How often are we trusting in ourselves and finding ourselves dry and needy and not coming to the Lord, and not believing his promises. And so why these promises had different trajectories for these two different sons, God indeed is working. So it says in verse 19, then God opened her eyes. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Often through life, aren't we looking at just what we see? It doesn't look good. Maybe your financial picture doesn't look good. What's happening at work doesn't look good. What the doctor has said to you doesn't look good. What your relationships are aren't looking good. Whatever God is doing in your life from a human perspective, do not be short-sighted. God, by his grace, wants you to be, have your eyes opened that you in faith can pursue him, that he's going to use even the disastrous mess of our lives for his purposes and for his glory. We're going to see in the context of Genesis, all of these people are a mess. Every family dysfunctional. And yet he takes the great sin that was meant for evil and he turns about using it for good. Church, do not be short-sighted in your life. In my life, God opens our eyes to see that we can behold his provision and so she sees here, verse 19, a well of water. How did she miss that? <laughs> well, God opened her eyes. She was blinded to it for his purposes. How often does God do that? That we are at our most exhausted state and God floods in in his kindness and he realizes and, or causes us to realize that he is that fount of living waters. He is all that we need. He is our soul's satisfaction. And we embarrassingly turn to him in repentance and say, oh God, why did I try to do it on my own? And so God opens her eyes. She goes to the well. And like any thirsty person, she fills the skin with water and she gives it to her son first. Notice he drinks and God was with the boy, it says, and he grew up. So a lot of history there in verse 20 that just speeds by. God showed grace upon Ishmael. God has a plan for Ishmael that God's going to use him. And isn't it interesting in God's common grace from all people that we see a grace that extends to uh, others, not just those of promise. 
that God is working his sovereign purposes. This is why we pray that God's will would be done even in the troubled spots around the world, that God holds all things in his hand. He is accomplishing and putting people where they need to be in the ultimate purpose of fulfilling his redemptive purposes. And all things will work together for that glorious cause. We often think that it seems weird that God would call missionaries to the field we know that was the call. It was the, the joy of their hearts to serve the Lord and those of us to support them. And they go and maybe experience loss or even death. And we say, why are you doing this, Lord? What, why all this, this wasted time? We, we've invested so much time and effort and yet this individual has died. It seems counter to what you are seeking to produce. Yet often we are short-sighted that God is working in the midst of great tragedy to produce, not just in us, but in his timing, a people that are going to be raised up for his glorious purposes. Church, do not be nearsighted that your life may just be a seed to what he is going to do in future generations. And don't look on that in a small way. God is faithful with these constant um, humbling ways that we can look to him in faith. And yes, Ishmael and Hagar were being called to trust him in their way at this time in their lives. And notice it says that not only did he grow up, end of verse 20, he lived in the wilderness that became his home and notice he became an expert with a bow. Your hungry mouth drives you on to do things, and he became excellent at it. I think it's interesting here in the text that even the, the, uh, the mishaps of our own lives teach us things in the context of what God has given us as our lot. And then in verse 21, notice it says that he lived in the wilderness of Paran, which is to the southern part of what would eventually become Judah, um, that he was going to, to be outside of that promised land. So there's a picture here of, of, of him being separated. And notice even the provision of a wife that his mother taked for him from the land of Egypt. Uh, again, Egypt, uh, often in the Old Testament, being shown as one of unbelief. We see this even in the context of Abraham and Sarah's last trip, that uh, they sought to hide their own identities as particularly Sarah's, as his sister, as an act of unbelief. And so we see a trajectory here, a different trajectory for the nation that would come out of Ishmael as opposed out of Isaac. So before we make application now, I didn't want to, I wanted to work through the, the, the text in this way, but just as our brother Brandon brought up in the opening of the service, that context is important in interpreting the scriptures. And we know that in the context of studying and interpreting the scriptures, we see the historical narrative here, and we're like, well, what does it mean? What, what is the application here to us? What is going on here? It seems like the Lord is, is showing kindness to Ishmael and, and Hagar, and yet we know that we've been reading about this promised child who the, the promise is going to go to the nations, and there's going to be these glorious things that are going to happen in the future. What in the world is going on here? And yet we see this awesome thread that God's word is sufficient to teach us not only the character of God, but to go to our hearts and to apply his word in helpful ways from the context explained and then applied. So to do that, we've got to turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Now, it's important to note that the best interpreter of Scripture, obviously, is the Holy Spirit, but through the Word of God. Scripture always interprets Scripture. And so there's value in, obviously, the Old and New Testament. One is not greater than the other. It is all God's Word, which is one of the reasons that we're going through Genesis there's very few, even of my favorite Bible teachers in my generation, 
Very few have gone word by word, verse by verse through Genesis, but it's, 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 it's very, very important. Why? Because the very uh, doctrines of all of Scripture are found here in this text. And if you think that I'm uh, maybe just overstating that, uh, the Apostle Paul's on my side because he uses Genesis right here. Sorry, I just like to say that Paul's my friend. So notice here in chapter 4, verse 21, Paul explains this. Now, speaking of context, let's go back to a larger view of Galatians so we don't get confused. God is uh, writing through the Apostle Paul a letter to the Galatians, mainly to Jewish Christians who are seeking to go back to the law as their sole foundation rather than freedom that God has given them in the gospel. That, that's basic there. In fact, there's so much trouble that even Peter is found to be a hypocrite kind of bouncing between the two. That he's hanging with the Gentiles and then when his Jewish friends come in, he, he kind of cleans up and pretends, oh no, I really wasn't hanging with them. And Paul rebukes him for this. You can read that in chapter 1. But he's also, Paul is rebuking them because they're going after really another gospel, another way to be made right with God. And he challenges them again by what it means to be justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, that we are justified only in Christ. And that's certainly true of our day. Do we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to start doing good things for God's favor? Well, God blows that out of proportion and we find ourselves like Hagar in the wilderness, thirsting because we cannot satisfy our own souls. And so Paul tells them foolish in chapter three, saying, who has bewitched you? That before the eyes of Jesus Christ, publicly portrayed as crucified, and let he, he asked them this question, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And again, he calls them foolish. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, that you would now be perfected by the flesh? It's a good reminder for us. Do we make a list of doctrines that if we just believe these things and hold to these things and they come out in our behavior, that that is our hope, that is our righteousness? Paul says, no. That drives us to Christ the well. And so he explains us at the end of chapter 3, the difference between law and the promise, and he's building these things to remind them of who they are in Christ, that you're not to be enslaved to the law, but ultimately free in Christ, who fulfills that law. Not that the law is, is gone. He's fulfilling that. It's his, his moral law is meant to be lived out in his people. So understand that. He speaks of sons and heirs, notice, by the Spirit at the beginning of chapter 4. And he uses both Isaac and Ishmael in this. He actually speaks of those born of the bondwoman versus those of the free woman, that they are free. And so Paul has a concern for the Galatians that ultimately ends us up here at chapter 4, verse 21. And notice what he says using this text from Genesis as his passage. He says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Well, so what does he mean by that? Remember, this was the human ingenuity of Abraham and Sarah. Let's take Hagar, the handmaid, let's have a promised son through her, and God will fulfill his promise through her. And God says, no. While he was, this was part of his providential plan in their lives, he is not the son of promise. So Paul continues into verse 23. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Again, God's promise, God's plan ultimately was for Isaac and through Isaac. Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, this is a hermeneutical gift to us here in the scriptures. And I want to underline this because Brendan was absolutely right when we talk about context that we see this. Now, some 
commentators have mistakenly, therefore, taken this text to say, therefore, all of Genesis shall be taken allegorically, which I would guard us from, is a horrible direction to go. Why? Well, it's actually happening in some of the evangelical world today. Genesis is seen as allegory. We start to question our foundations. Is there a literal six-day creation or not? Has there been millions of years? Did, really, did God use the evolutionary process? Did, is all this stuff just kind of stories to, to be about a, a, an ultimate bigger picture? Well, see, you can see where we explode into a million different directions here. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's specifically talking about this category of where the separation between the slave woman and the free woman separate. And when we look at a text of Scripture, we look at it in its plain sense. We don't need to be looking for codes and patterns and getting off on all kinds of weird stuff that lead us into false doctrine and weird practice. But God is faithful. And I just want you to see that here, that the apostle is very kind and the Holy Spirit through him to tell us what the scripture is and what it teaches. So he says it can be interpreted allegorically. So what is an allegory? Well, an allegory is simply taking a text, which certainly was historical and certainly happened, but in the midst of that happening, it also can be told of what God was ultimately doing in his providential plan. And what does he say here in verse 24? He says, these women are two covenants. And we see that in the text, don't we? We know that God was working through Ishmael and showing his kindness to Hagar and providing for them. But we also know that the son of promise was ultimately going to be fulfilled in the line of Christ and that God has a plan for them. So what's the difference? Well, Paul explains it here. There's two covenants at play. There's an identity in these covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know if that surprises you, because you would think, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, like, this is the trajectory of Genesis. Isn't that connected with Sinai? And Paul says, no. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. should bring up a question, the purpose of the law. And he identifies she is Hagar. Hagar was a real historical person, but God was doing something in the midst of this to preach a larger message. And in the same way God uses our lives to illustrate however he chooses the fringe of his ultimate redemptive plan in this generation and the next. She is Hagar. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. He's speaking of Sinai in the sense that that where the law came down, where God met with Moses. And notice that this is the very context of getting into the mind of Moses, the author of Genesis, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing the history of Genesis, that right here in the text of of chapter 21, Moses is writing about these two eventual covenants that are ultimately going to prophesy the greatness of the glory of God in Christ, but also God's ultimate plan for the nations. And these are going to come together in God's redemptive purposes. And so Paul, you can see why he's explaining this to these Galatians who are completely off the rockers as far as the Christian life. So he says, now Hagar's Mount Sinai in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Well, what's present Jerusalem in right now in 60 AD when Paul is writing this to the Galatians? Well, as you know, after Christ came, died, and rose again, what happened to the Jews? They began to continue. They just continued their faith. They do some to this day. That they're worshiping the Lord in what they know were the forms that God had given them in the Old Testament, but they've rejected Christ. They have held instead to the law, thinking that what they do is ultimately going to earn favor with God and somehow he will be pleased. And yet, we know that from the context of God's fulfillment in Christ of these great and precious promises that Christ is the one who would fulfill the law on their behalf, that he would die and that he would rise again for their sake, imputing his righteousness to them and taking their sin from them as far as the east is from the west. 
And they, as New Testament Christians, are trying to go back to that. And that's why Paul says, you are foolish. Maybe you're seeing the picture more. How often do we try to grow in the Christian life in our own strength? If there's anything we're learning from the path of Genesis, it's that our flesh is so not to be trusted. The seeds of our own fleshly decisions are all around us, and that's exactly what Abraham saw with Ishmael. And so we see, but Jerusalem above is free. So Paul is talking about ultimately the tale of two cities here, the present-day Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that is yet to come. And notice its context. One is in bondage and one is free. That what God was teaching even at Sinai in the content of his character and his nature and the great swath between man and holy God, that God is going to bring together in his redemptive purposes both of these lines of those who are separated from God and those who are being called into his purposes. And ultimately, he is going to be glorified and there is going to be peace and freedom in this new Jerusalem. And this is where it's exciting because it says she is our mother. His definition of identity is with this covenant in Isaac. He's saying, Galatians, you have been bewitched. You have been so foolish. Your identity is in the gospel and in Christ alone. And when you try to make your identity in something that's cultural, you try to get your identity into something that has been taught to you, or you're trying to have your identity in in something that you are accomplishing for your purposes, it will fail. And it will not bring lasting hope. And it certainly brings bondage. And so he quotes here Isaiah in verse 27. He says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who, of the one that has a husband. And so he says in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, He was persecuted, and here, this is important for the text that we've been looking at, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. You see the flesh and spirit struggle here, Isaac and Ishmael. Persecuted according to the Spirit, and so also it is now. This continual raging continues, verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? And notice, this is a quotation of Sarah's mouth herself. She prophesied scripture and God brought it to pass. It says, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. In Paul's words to the, Galatia, or to the Corinthians, flesh and blood shall not put on incorruptibility. God ultimately will raise us up. He is the only one that brings life. And so he says in verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And the glorious conclusion of Galatians in chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be submitting to, again, a yoke of slavery. And so here is the application for us, church. Where is your identity? Is your identity in being a good person, a good mom, good father, good worker? Notice the text is telling us that our identity is in the context of covenant. And if you, dear child of God, have been seen by God's grace to have entered this covenant through faith, and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, your identity ought to be in no other than Christ alone. And so his gospel speaks out to us today. A warning as to the Galatians, but also in the text of Genesis, that we find ourselves in this this sense of our identity of, are we going to identify with the flesh and of the law and what we do and what we seek to produce out of life? 
versus those who in humble adoration bow the knee as it's exemplified in the life of Abraham, one who is living by faith and left his, his country and followed after God when it didn't make sense, trusted the promises of God that God brought to fulfillment and ultimately this thread, scarlet thread of redemption that he holds on to that and walks through by faith until the end, until it's connected to the next generation. Church, what are we grasping? Are we, like the Galatians, seeking to be made perfect in just actions that we do, the goals that we set? No, but Paul says even in chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And often our mind goes, desires of the flesh. So that's sinful things that we desire. But I think in the context here, he's also saying desires of the flesh is ways that we would seek to make a way to feel good about ourselves and distract us from the gospel. That we think by our own good deeds and our own good works that somehow we are made righteous with God. And he says these words, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh for those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And he lists the works of the flesh, which would include pride, which could be spiritual pride for many of us. So I find here multiple applications. In what ways, church, are we trying to find identity in the things that we do rather than the things that Christ has done? Secondly, in what ways have we forgotten that our identity ultimately is in Christ and therefore our future we can entrust to him with great confidence regardless of the circumstances that we face today. Thirdly, what we see from Hagar in this text of Genesis is important to us as well. That when we feel that God has somehow abandoned us, when we feel that God has somehow left us thirsty in the desert, he is the one who is able to open our eyes. He is able to care for us. And he shows his loving care for even those outside of this covenant in a fleshly way, every time even a sinner uh, eats a meal or drinks a cup of cold water, they're experiencing common grace from the Almighty. Fourthly, I think we see application here of our own hearts that we ought to look to the Lord in great expectation of what he is accomplishing, not just right now in our lives through our walks with Christ, but ultimately what he's going to do through us. And I think with that comes the communication of our lips of the gospel. Church, you're still here. God has a mission and our identity in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ is immediately connected to the great commission of the Lord Jesus that we are here as gospel proclaimers. You don't have to have a, a, a natural speaking gift or teaching gift. God asks us all to be faithful witnesses of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And when God is connecting the great truths of the Old Testament to the New Testament and our looking forward to what is yet to come in Christ, this is why we can pray with faith that God is connecting these truths to what we are called to do as his people. Why? As I prayed this morning, there are 3.2 billion people on the planet who have never heard of him. Why, if this is such a great gospel, are we so quiet? He, in his kindness, is trying to take us out of the muck and mire and use us as instruments in his redeeming hands. And church... He's so kind to us that he gives us a text like this and shows us that without him, we are like Hagar and Ishmael dying in the desert. And he opens our eyes to see Christ, to behold the one, the well, the, the wellspring that we can drink of deeply, but not just to refresh ourselves, but to take it to those who desperately need it. He didn't save us just to ride this journey out of the Christian life. We're not called to just endure but we are living and breathing because he wants us to go. And I'm not saying that he's going to send you to the ends of the earth, but he might. And I pray that he would. I often am torn because I am so blessed in the Western world. And I read and I pray and I see 
the, the suffering around the world and those who have never heard. And I say, God, what, what are you doing in the world? But yet he can be trusted here too. And so this last point of application is for us to ask that question. Lord, in what ways am I blocking or seeking to block in my own flesh what you are clearly calling me to do in taking this great message that is preached to me here in Genesis 21 to those who have never heard? And church, when you pray that prayer and you ask God to apply that, he will answer. You ever pray for opportunities to share your faith? He will give it. Whether we're faithful or not is another question, but he always answers that prayer. And so I encourage us to think of these application purposes, not just for our own good, but for the good of the glory of God and the sufficiency that he is to us, that he might be glorified and that we would be satisfied in him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we have chewed a bunch this morning of this great feast from your word. And Lord, in so many ways where this mental exercise has left us exhausted. But we see in the great history of Genesis this great promise, this great trajectory of two covenants, and yet at that same time as your people, we are called to identify with you and your great covenant. Lord, as we do that in looking to you by faith in your death and your resurrection, as we have just come to your table last week, we see that in picture form of the gospel, that your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, the new covenant of your blood a freedom that none of us could ever have attained to, but that you freely have given us in Christ. And it's only by the yielding of faith to you and your promises are we in that freedom. Father, I pray that we would not be like the foolish Galatians to trust ourselves, to be foolish as it's been exemplified in the life of Abraham and Sarah, to look to the side and say, where's the Hagar that I might seek to fulfill God's purposes, rather than to trust you to do what seems impossible. Lord, forgive us for being just logical Christians, but not faithful Christians. Forgive us for academically studying your word, but not in spirit trusting you to fulfill it in us. Forgive us, Lord, for being people who are not after your glory primarily, but just enjoying the benefits of your grace and idolizing them in many ways. God, would you help us with that? And God, would you give us a burning desire? Give us a kindness in our hearts like we saw with Abraham and even God in this text to provide that we wouldn't just take physical things to people to relieve their physical needs, but Lord, that we would tell them about the living water that they could drink of and forever be satisfied. God, bring us the opportunity to do that as a church, that your gospel would go from this place through the mouths of your people for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Our ushers come forward for this morning's offering. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great kindness to us. Thank you that we've been able to reflect, Lord, in prayer 
confessing our own sin and delighting in your assurance of pardon. Thank you for helping us to sing to each other and to you. Thank you for helping us walk through your word, to mind the truths and the depths of your word and how to interpret it correctly and to apply it correctly. Father, now as we go to our time of giving, Lord, would you help us to give not begrudgingly, not out of um, a feeling of obligation, but Lord, cheerfully for what you've given to us. Lord, that this too is worship, that we, by giving a portion of what you have provided for us, provides a great deal of needs for many. Lord, we pray that you would give us your wisdom in stewarding these funds, Lord, for not just the furtherance of, of this church and for the, your gospel in this area, but for the support of missionaries and the relief of the poor and the care for the things that you've entrusted to us. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to look to you as our provider. Lord, that you would help us to trust you radically for what you would have us to do in the days ahead. Take these gifts, we pray. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.